Welcome to Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter. I am Dr. Reginald Frection. This week's discussion will focus on what's going wrong in policing. Over the last six days, we've seen the video of George Floyd who died while in police custody in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The visceral reaction to the video from members of the community and many current and former law enforcement professionals have prompted this discussion and the broader question, what's going wrong in policing? We don't claim to have all the answers, but we recognize that there needs to be an ongoing dialogue surrounding the many instances where citizens of color have died at the hands of the police. Today, we will explore some broad topics, but in the future episodes, we will engage in a more robust dialogue on each topic to include the underlying principle of human rights and the responsibility of law enforcement in protecting those rights. Again, I am Dr. Reginald Frection. My research in law has focused on the obligation of governments to protect vulnerable individuals and groups. I've spent the last nine years researching and working as an advocate for domestic workers in Hong Kong who suffer labor rights violations to include human trafficking and human trafficking for forced labor. My knowledge, experience, and understanding of the underlying principles of human rights, its application to law enforcement, and the atrocity in Minneapolis compels me to have this discussion. My law enforcement experience includes 11 years at the Prince George's County Police Department. Many of those years spent as a detective in the Criminal Investigation Division. I also served as a supervisor responsible for community policing and previously as an investigator assigned to the U.S. Army Criminal Investigation Division, Fort Bragg, North Carolina. My doctorate in law is from the University of York Law School, Center for Applied Human Rights in the United Kingdom. I have a master's degree in management and leadership from the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore, Maryland, and a graduate of the Police Executive Leadership Program at the same university. To help explore this question, what's going wrong in policing? I reached out to a few former law enforcement professionals to share their experience and their assessment on the state of policing. Today we're joined by Maurice Davis. He's currently the Director of Security at the University of Maryland Medical Campus. Mr. Davis served as a Lieutenant Colonel for the Natural, Maryland Natural Resources Police. He holds a Master's in Management and Leadership from the Johns Hopkins University Police Executive Leadership Program and he's a graduate of the FBI National Academy. In his current and previous positions, he has been responsible for overseeing training of organizational workforce. Next, we have Mike Brown, Director of Professional Development for the National Sheriff's Association. Mr. Brown, former served uh, with the Fairmont Heights Police Department, Chevrolet Police Department, the Training Administrator for the DC Department of Corrections, the Training Manager for the Maryland Transportation Department. Mike is in contact daily with sheriff departments across the country, as well as other state and local agencies and academic institutions. We're also joined by Lee James, who's held executive leadership positions in the Prince George's County Police Department. He served as the chief of police for Howard University in Washington, D.C., and most recently as the executive director for the campus safety and security at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. He also served as the interim chief at the Prince George's County Community College, and he continues to contribute to the field of criminal justice at the nation's universities. Lee is a graduate of the Police Executive Leadership Program at Johns Hopkins University and holds a master's degree in management and leadership. And as a quick note, the guests today are providing their own personal views and experience as law enforcement professionals. The views they express should not be taken as an expression of policy or positions of any organization that they may be affiliated with. My first question would go to the guests. What was your initial reaction and thoughts seeing the video of George Floyd? Let me uh, let me jump on that first, um, Reggie. Um, first of all, we appreciate you um, inviting us to be a part of this, and um, you know I think it's um, it's part of a national discussion that's going on. Enforcement professionals, we're um, 
you know, we're shaking our heads and we're asking ourselves, when is this, you know, when is this sort of, um, these types of incidents going to come to an end and all the things that we've been taught over the years um, around community policing and building trust with the community and things like that. When, when are those things really going to take effect um, throughout the institutions of policing? So, you know, for me, the, the initial reaction was, you know, you used the word visceral earlier. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think that tells us, you know, how, um, how it makes us feel. I mean, we, I was just, um, I was just outraged um, to see that this is happening again and again and again. Um, and so, you know, the cavalier attitude of how um, African-Americans and in general are treated, but by the police, you know, we, we entered that field to, to serve, to protect, to do good. And when you see those types of incidents, it just kind of erases all of the work that's been done, you know, over the years um, by police officers all over the country. So it was, uh, it was outrageous. And then of course, you know, what we're seeing now with the demonstrations, um, many of them that have gone into a different direction, it sort of takes away from that community policing um, philosophy that we have come to know um, and have come to practice over the years. So it was uh, outrageous for me. So, so um, I'd like to speak to that as well. Obviously, um, for me, it was a disgusting act to see um, that, that happen. I can't imagine um, how that, how do, how, how did we get there? Um, these four police officers and um, allowed this to happen in broad daylight um, without uh, any remorse, any apparent remorse. Um, this was unconscionable. Um, this is not the policing that I know. And I want to say up front that there's um, a lot of police agencies and a lot of people doing a lot of great work in those organizations. This, I'd like to say, was a, uh, a one-off, but uh, the problem is, is that it's happening too much. We've seen too much of it across the country. So there's definitely something wrong with policing. There's a disconnect between the, the society and uh, uh, modern policing. The issue is probably um, very complicated in terms of um, culture in the police force culture in our society, um, realistic expectations of what the police should be doing, and certainly training. Um, it's sad to see um, that we've gotten to this point where we're actually um, killing African-American men, people of color. Um, again, it's not the policing that I know. I had a combination of thoughts and emotions uh, ranging from fear and anger and disgust on an emotional side, but on a um, more knowledge and experience side, uh, the thoughts that came to mind were culture, uh, as stated by Mo, and, and negligence. Yeah, mm -hmm. I sort of had the, the same reaction. Um, I know some you know, some folks may look at the the video and and probably pass it off as a training issue, and I think this has nothing to do with training. Uh, when I looked at the video, I, I was first, I was literally sick to my stomach, and then it was anger. Um, because based on the body language that I saw, you saw this willful conduct and a disregard for all the warnings that were coming from people um, that were um, standing by, um, whether it was um, telling them that, they, you know, George Floyd was bleeding from the nose, that he was having problems breathing, you know, nothing was done to to alleviate his his distress, and I think based on just the citizens' reaction, um, this was just unreasonable. Um, there was no uh, justification for the action that um, that we saw. But obviously, these these issues involve are, are really complex, and there are multiple variables that are coexisting. You know, there are thousands of police interactions daily that are uneventful and are conducted in a professional manner. But uh, when mistakes are made or a person's humanity um, is disregarded, 
uh, unfortunately, uh, people die. And this isn't the only incident, you know, based on other incidents that we've seen in the, in the um, not too distant past, we can look at Brianna Taylor in Louisville, uh, Kentucky, or Duncan Kemp in Montgomery County. This, this accusation that within law enforcement agencies across the country, there's a culture of prejudice and racial bias that exists, and it disproportionately impacts minority individuals and groups. Law enforcement officers operate with a sort of impunity for the use of force and other human rights violations. So I want to start the discussion today and just read an excerpt from an article from the NBC News, um, which was titled, Minnesota Police Chief Faces New Test as After George Floyd Death. So community activist um, Sam Sanchez said that the chief of Minneapolis, Chief Arredondo, is a very good at public relations, but he hasn't delivered the changes we need in Minneapolis. And even though Arredondo has personally felt the sting of discrimination, he still bleeds cop blue. There is a blue line that is not crossed. Arredondo is a police officer first before anything else. Being a police officer comes before his race and ethnicity. Now, I think the last thing that you want is policing based on race and ethnicity. But when I unpack this statement, I think two issues are quickly jump out at me. One, there's a culture within law enforcement that regardless of your race or ethnicity, the cultural norms of the organization takes precedent. And secondly, because of the chief's race and ethnicity, there's an expectation that a black chief will swiftly cure the ills he inherits. Now we can deal with the second issue probably at a later date, but I wanna start with the first issue because it goes to the heart of one basic human rights principle, which is non-discrimination, right? So the principle of non-discrimination is a fundamental principle to the protection of rights. Everyone is equal before the law and entitled to equal protection of the law without discrimination on any grounds such as sex, race, color, language, religion, political affiliation. So my question is, is there a culture of pervasive racial bias or prejudice in policing across the United States? Mike Brown, let's start with you. I think if you look at the entire system from the applicant process through screening, the selection process, uh, there is an inherent racial bias, even though it may not be intentional. And let me give an example of what I mean. So in order to pass a background test, they go, they talk to neighbors, and typically in a white middle-class community, you were born and raised in the neighborhood, everybody knows you, it makes the background progress process really easy versus me, for example, growing up in Chicago, I went to four different elementary schools. So the background process in and of itself has cultural and economic biases built into it. So I don't know how you fix that. And fast forward, so you end up getting middle white class uh, applicants and you put them in a situation with a race of people that they've only seen on CNN or some other news show where they're committing crimes. And then you end up where you get sworn in and now all of your biases that you've developed through various mechanisms come to play when you respond to some of these incidents. Yeah, yeah you know, piggybacking on, uh, on what Mike just said, you know, I, I think that um, that is part, a huge part of the challenge that we have in American policing today is how do you take people such as, you know, um, the white males that um, Mike referred to, and adequately, not adequately, but really um, educate them on how to communicate and how to, how, how to understand people's different, the different cultures that they're gonna encounter. You know, one of the things that I, and I know you remember this, Reggie, when we were on the police department, a lot of, a lot of young um, white male officers would want to say, hey, I want to work in those areas where there's a lot of crime and 
in those areas, they're closest to the District of Columbia, um, and they're predominantly, you know, um, dominated by people of color, um, African Americans in particular. It's it's there is more to it than 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 about trying to make an arrest. It's it's about trying to understand people's culture and the things that they're going through. And then a lot of the systemic things, you know, contribute to, you know, someone trying to do policing in a community like that. And if you're not really prepared, if you're not, if you really don't understand, you know, the plight of people, the things that people are going through, it makes it very difficult. And so um, I don't, I think that police organizations really do not do a good job of preparing officers to work in communities like the communities you and I worked in. Yeah. Chris? Yeah, I, um, I, I kind of agree with both what the, um, Mike said, and there's a fundamental problem in how we recruit people. And I know that anybody that's been in a command position has been under pressure to fill vacancies. And sometimes when that happens, you have a tendency to um, take shortcuts. But when you're dealing with young people, when you're dealing with people who are new to policing, we must do the due diligence and spend time talking to them about race, figuring out what their concepts of, of race, um, trying to figure out are they suitable psychologically to be able to handle um, the pressure that they're going to receive when they get into the community. And um, I heard you say that uh, sometimes training doesn't have anything to do with this, but I think training is extremely important because we have to put these officers in situations in a safe environment, in a training environment that duplicates the community to evaluate um, what they will do as a predictor. Now, the other thing you asked, you asked the question, um, is there a racial bias across the country? I think that if you look at the data and you look at the number of events that have taken place involving people of color and the kinds of violent crimes that's been inflicted upon them, the answer is obvious. Yes, there is something wrong with uh, policing. When we take the oath, we're not taking the oath for the police department. We're taking the oath for the Constitution. We work for the state. We work for uh, the people, and the people are the state. And so my loyalty or um, the loyalty for police officers should be for the people um, of the state, uh, not the police department. That thin blue line that we always talk about, we need to really, really do something radical to interrupt that. Um, and we need to train our police officers that Anyone at any rank has a right to interrupt a process that's gone wrong, that's obviously gone wrong, without the fear of, without the fear of intimidation. Well, let me, let me go and ask this question then. If there's this, whether it's real or perception that there's a, a level of bias within police organizations, right? and we're talking about a culture of the organization, where do we start in researching what to do based on where, where did this start? Where did prejudice and bias within police organizations start? I mean, is this a recent phenomenon or is this um, a historical, you know, a, a legacy, if you will, from slavery, Jim Crow, that's embedded within these organizations that have been unaddressed? I mean, we've been talking about it for a long time, and why is it still continuing? Where, where do we go back? What's the starting point? I think the, I think the um, starting point is to do exactly what you just did, continue to ask the question, to continue to stay in the question of how did we, how, how did we get here, when did it start, um, and, 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 and how did it evolve into um, what it is today? Certainly all those historical um, incidents um, have something to do with policing, the fact that uh, you, as a police officer, <clears throat> you're probably the only profession, other than the military, that at, uh, within seconds, you can do nothing or you can take a person's life. And you have to consider that. And that's a whole lot of information. When 
when somebody uh, is convicted of something and goes to the courts, there's all kinds of litigation and challenges and stuff like that. However, when a police officer has to make a decision or when they're alone by themselves and, and, and um, interacting with somebody that they perceive as aggressive, they're left to their training, they're left to their prejudice, they're left to the culture of the police department, and certainly their fears. And so I think there's a lot of things involved in um, how we got to this point. And certainly, uh, Reggie, as you mentioned, a lot of it has to do with historical uh, perceptions and um, uh, evolution. Reggie, um, let me tell you not how I think it started, but how easy it is. So growing up in what was at one time one of the most segregated cities in America, I've never seen a Hispanic in my life until joining the U.S. Air Force. So prior to that, the only Hispanics that I'd seen were on Clint Eastwood movies, uh, Mexicans with bandoliers. So imagine had I not gone into the Air Force, but instead went right into the police academy and they put me in a Hispanic community. So I think it starts from your environment and your upbringing. And unless there's some intervention, at least at the academy level, to address those biases, you'll, you'll take them right on, out on into to the street with you. Reggie, I, I think that, um, you know, the historical part of policing, you know, um, especially in America, has a lot of significance um, and, and ghosts, if you will, um, that haunt police organizations and, and policing in general today because, you know, a lot of times when you read about how policing, um, especially in the South, um, departments were constituted, they were constituted of white males um, that were um, basically um, policing a, a community or a, um, a city um, that were, you know, people of color uh, for, for the most part um, and trying to keep them, you know, um, in order part of it. But what troubles me is the fact that, you know, many of us um, and many leaders across, you know, the policing spectrum have tried for years to break, um, to, to sort of, push policing into a new era and, and sort of, um, you know, try to, to move with society and the changes in society. However, the, the ghosts of, I would say, um, policing in the past, especially in the South, um, just has not, it, it just seems to permeate these organizations, hence where it is not that easy to effectuate change. Fixing policing is not a one-shot deal. You know, it, it's, it's got to be a constant 24-7, 365 days a year job. And, and it's tough doing that, trying to make sure that you're listening to the community, you're talking to the community, you, you're, re you're reflecting the community's needs um, and, and, and the things that make a community run. You know, what Mo said earlier about you know, policing and, and in response to a community, we are the community, we're part of the community. But I think a lot of people forget that. Um, and so, you know, those are some of the thoughts that I wanted to share on that issue. So I, I guess uh, there are a couple of things that I've heard uh, throughout the first part of the discussion um, that we can touch on in a second, and that's um, recruiting, uh, training, and leadership. Mm -hmm. But I have, uh, I think, one more question when we start talking about the police culture. Obviously, you've all heard the accusation that there's this code of silence. And, and, and especially if you look at the, um, the quote that I read earlier, that um, the chief um, is blue, right? Mm -hmm. He still bleeds cop blue. There's a blue line that is not crossed, right? I mean, what is what is this underlying accusation of a basically code of silence within uh, police organizations? Well, I think uh, it's very, very difficult to work with uh, people every day. They become your friends. And as you know, um, police is a 
close-knit group group let's take away let's take away from the actual law enforcement what have you just like we're talking today we're we're, we're good friends and not one of us want to see another person get themselves in trouble but uh, when you say that the police chief uh, bleeds blue the police chief also has to have have to have integrity and integrity and and, and that's what policing should be built on is integrity that we all are willing to do the right thing at the right time. And so while we are friends and while we spend several hours a day together and we struggle and we bleed together and we sweat together, we still have to have enough rigor with ourselves that when somebody is out of line, we have to, first of all, make sure that we do something about it. And part of that is making it transparent so that people in the community whom which we serve have trust in the organization. That's very important. Lena? The, the issue of this, you know, um, you know, I, the, the, the quote that you read earlier about the uh, reporter talking about the chief, um, you know, it really, you know, I, I don't know how well he knows the chief or how well he knows the chief's motivations, but that's, to me, that is his interpretation you know, when you go back to the model of serve and protect, 99.9% .9 of the people that come on the police department come on with the notion that I want to help people. I want to serve people. Somewhere along the line, of course, that gets, you know, skewed for some folks. But, you know, when you think about what we do and who we serve, um, public servants, public service, you know, those are bedrocks, sort of foundational things in policing that sometimes over the years, you know, sometimes they get skewed for different people for different reasons. Like people that are outside the police profession um, and they use this term of your blood runs blue or whatever. It's, it's, it's a higher calling. And when you have, when you're dedicated to that and you're focused on that and making sure that your people are focused on that, sometimes I think that, that gets skewed you know, in, in the, uh, in the, in the dialogue. Mike. So Reggie, I, I think my colleagues did such a good um, job of answering that question. I'm going to turn your question into a question. And my question is this, when you talk about the uh, perceived uh, thin blue line, is that a self-fulfilling prophecy? For example, uh, the police organization that Mo and Lee talked about, that we actually call ourselves the fraternal order of police, which is a fraternity. So just being called a fraternity or being part of a fraternity uh, kind of puts you in a position of a brotherhood. And then when you look at the incident that happened on night before last or last night on CNN, where the citizens were destroying a building and you see cop to cop, so the cop to my left may be white and the cop to his right may be black. Does that feed into the, the perception that is blue against everyone else? Based on my own experience, I think there's a number of different reasons why that um, perception may linger. Um, I think one of the things is that we're always reluctant to criticize a fellow officer because I, I, I say to people, police officers a lot of times live their lives in seconds. Mm. We're required sometimes to act with such um, speed um, and everybody's perception of this incident is different. And we, we hate to criticize one another because when we think about it, we're unable sometimes to, to come up with a solution of what would I have done in that instance? Mm. And the default is probably to give the benefit of the doubt until there's more information. I think unfortunately sometimes that lack of information or lack of action in, you know, that's quick, a quick response then feeds into um, the perception that we're covering, you know, for one another. Mm -hmm. um, I think in some instances, there is uh, a situ uh, situations where um, you don't you don't want to get your, uh, someone in trouble and you don't speak up. I mean, if we look at this video again from George Floyd, I mean, we had 
um, three other officers standing by and there's a disconnect between the urgency or the lack of urgency on their part and the perceptions of the public that we're observing and then the reaction of the public since the video was released. And I go, where does this disconnect come from? Well, you have three officers looking at an incident in public where members of the public are crying out for them to do something and everybody can stand around and do or say nothing. Okay. And I mean, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of underlying issues, um, but I think it runs on a spectrum from we're unsure what happened, um, I'm a reluctant to criticize, and I think in some instances there's just pure malfeasance on, on the part of you know officers just to speak up. Okay. But I want to you know, kind of move on, and moving on from the culture. Then, if we if we have an issue um, with it, with the culture within the organization, and we're talking about recruiting the right set of people, then how do we get there? How do we start recruiting? And I, I want to start by saying this, you know, the police department or the police agency is a microcosm of the greater society. What happens when we see a black man in a construction site, as with Ahmed Aubrey in, in, in Georgia, or a white woman in Central Park, you know, saying that a black man is threatening her life, which was false, but her expectation was that the police would consider it urgent if she described who the threat was coming from. How do you then change policing culture in a department or agency? How do you start recruiting the right officers without addressing the, the issue on a broader social um, level? I, I think um, we have to look at what we want. In t as a uh, end result, what does a good police officer, male, female, black, Hispanic, what does a good uh, uh, police officer look like? What characteristics does that person have? Um, what kind of education does that person have? What kind of training? And so if you start at that, looking from that perspective, then you can uh, break it down to say that these are the things that we're looking for. And I suggest to you, um, that we don't want robots. What we want is people who can think independently, that can look at the policy of the organization, understand the law, and have the right application at the right time. That's the person that I think we want to hire. Independent thinkers, people that can weigh all of that stuff and, and come up with a great decision to say, this is what's reasonable, this is what makes sense. You see, in the uh, George Floyd incident, somebody failed to see that uh, this is not our policy, or it shouldn't be our policy. Uh, this is not the right occasion for this level of force. And certainly, this is not the law. And that's what was missing, is that you had several officers standing around or participating in this. And to the best of my knowledge, not one of them said, okay, this doesn't meet our policy, it doesn't meet the law, and it certainly is not the right situation where we should be doing this. You know, um, Mo just hit on something that made me think about um, um, Stephen Covey's, um, one of his seven habits was begin with the end in mind. You know, when policing's um, standards around recruiting and care, um, characteristics that we're looking for, I think, when those things were, were um, when we came up with those things, a lot of those things were based on people, um, characteristics from the military. Um, what I think um, needs to occur now um, is, as we've always said for a number of years, um, we've got to really you know, look at our um, the end the end customer, the end the 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 people that we serve. You know, wh what is it that they would like to see? What does society want to see in a police officer? And and so incorporating um, society's 
picture. Um, and I'm talking about the civilian world, not just the military world. Um, I think we have to get that perspective into our policing. What I see it really is policing as is at a place now where there has got to be significant um, change in policing um, going forward. Um, and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be cheap. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. Is recruiting the right people. What are the things that you're looking for? What would make um, this person um, the 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 primo example of what a police officer should be. And it changes, you know, nowadays, you know, we have a different generation of police, people that are police officers out there. Um, generation X and generation Y are now gonna be the police officers. So how do you, how does policing continually change, you know, in order to meet, meet the needs of society? Um, and I think that has to be incorporated into recruiting, into training, into all the things that impact policing, because eventually they impact the community. Mike? I'm not convinced that we're recruiting the wrong people. So let me give you an example. If you look at a recruit as a blank canvas, give him the best training possible, he has the highest standard of character, everything that you could look for, he graduates and you drop him into a tank of fluorescent orange, which is the culture of that agency. You can't say, because I recruited the wrong person, this guy is covered in, in fluorescent orange. I really think you can recruit the right person, train the right person. If you put them in the wrong culture, they're gonna be tainted. So I can't really say that we're recruiting the wrong people. I think is more so what happens to that person after they're recruited and they're released from the academy to the rest of the agency. Like, I, I think what I'm hearing you saying is that not only is selecting the right person uh, critical, but in doing that, you also have to look internally about who that person is going to be turned over to once they're recruited. Absolutely. And, All and, four of us have heard the term forget what you learned in the academy, this is how we do it. Yeah, right. But then also I want to go back to something Mo said, and, and I think it might be covered, you know, we could talk about it later as well. But I guess selecting the, the and I guess it may be a, a good time to transition into the training issue, because you talked, Mo talked about um, the policy. We're looking for thinkers and we have good policy in place. But isn't it the fact that, you know, when we talk about, uh, organizational policy, we limit free thinking because we encourage people to adhere, you know, you get a general order a manual that's about four inches thick and you've got all these rules of what you should do, should, you know, and how do we do that, um, you know, train an officer to think independently, but then set the limits or the parameters based on a manual that we ask them to adhere to. Um, Reggie, I, I, I go back to this um, policies. I look at policies for the most part as a guideline. Yeah. This is what the agency says that I should do. Okay. Um, but at the same time, um, you, the questions that we're going to ask an officer if he gets in trouble, if he does something out of the scope of the policy, is what did you know at the time? What should you have known at the time? And did you have the ability to do something differently? And so if you answer those three questions, if a person is able to answer those three questions, we can determine whether the whether he, he followed the policy, but there was an exception and he took the right road. Because no one can say to you, even in an academy, that this is what you're going to run into. Every situation is going to be the same. It's always variables. And what we want is we want people who can uh, see those variables and say, okay, I know what the policy says, but this is the right thing to do. So um, I don't think you can ever get away from having uh, organization policies because we have to act somewhat in a consistent manner. People have to see us as not a, a, a group of uh, ragtag individuals doing whatever we want, but at the same time, you have to have people who are able to adjust very, very quickly. Okay. And so um, 
I would suggest to you that having uh, uh, people who can look at policy, look at law, and then uh, look at the culture and what's actually going on at that moment and make a good decision, that's important. And that's how you would do that. I think that uh, the um, you know policies are um, framed around laws, statutes, the U.S. Constitution, state constitutions, etc. You, you can't get away from those things, and and you've got to operate within a structure of policies and procedures. If that if you didn't have those things to operate within, you know everybody would be doing their own thing. But at the same time, you really want to you know, train that officer, not only on the policies and the procedures, but how to really make the right decision. You know, what is the right decision and then to support that decision. Um, you know, when, when in this discussion, what I think about it were some of the people that were my training officers, high regard for those people because they understood the policies as guidelines. However, they also understood community. They understood what people were about. They understood what communication was about. They understood, you know, the, the, the things that people were going through. And you may not be having a great day. And, and, and it may have led to something that resulted in the police being called. But how do you, how do you, you know, understand that situation as an officer? So you've got to give officers that flexibility to be able to perform in that manner. I think that's what, what makes good police officers, great communication skills, uh, um, the ability to um, empathize and understand um, and, 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 and understand the role of police in the policies and the procedures that the department has to live by. Um, I think that's what helps to make a better police department and better police officers. Yeah. Mike, you have any? Yeah, just real quick. I think this portion of the conversation um, Reminds me of a conversation that I had with the uh, former sheriff of LA County, uh, Lee Baca, where Lee and I talked about how do you make the distinction between what policy says and doing what's right. And what Lee said to me was that his agency had what amounted to a, a code of ethics that every recruit had to memorize before they were able to graduate. And when you get on the scene and you don't know what to do, you go back to that code of ethics. that basically a Trump's policy, uh, which supports what Mosley said. Yeah. So we're talking about incorporating within training, not only the adherence to written policy, but just a basic understanding of um, what you're not only legally responsible for, but ethically responsible for, because there could be a conflict at times. Um, just a general un understanding of basic human rights uh, protections that you should be that should should be afforded to the public that you come into contact with. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Are we meeting the standards within the police academies in adequately training uh, people? Under the current under the current situation under the current system, you know, Reggie, that that's um, I think for the most part, most police departments um, try to meet those type those types of standards. Um, you know, policing is a very dynamic um, occupation. Let's just say. Um, you know, through a 20 or a 25 or 30 year career, um, a person who's a police officer goes through a number of life changing issues um, that impact um, their, their, their performance on the job. Um, but I think the, the basic premise of our police departments doing um, the right things to educate, to train, to recruit and all that sort of thing I think for the most part, you know, um, they are. However, what we've got to be careful about is that we don't fall behind. You know, one of the things about policing you always hear about is tradition. You were, we're deep in tradition. We're steeped in tradition. We, we, we've always done it this way. Society is changing. Society has been changing. Policing also needs to be changing at a rapid pace. Um, 
for example, when I came on the police department, you know, nobody ever heard about a body camera, a body worn camera. Nobody ever heard of um, less lethal force, um, those type of things. Um, we've had to adjust to society and, and you, you'll see where policing has made adjustments. Um, the fact of the matter is, you know, just like, like I've said before is, you know, it's, it's gotta be constant in order to have, you know, um, a police force that's professional, a police force that um, can relate to their community and not have this us against them mentality embedded in. Let me Go jump ahead. in there for a second. And, and I guess uh, for Mo and, uh, and Mike, when you get to the same question, I mean, are we doing what's necessary in, in training right now? So we're, I think there's over about 18,000 state and local uh, police agencies across the country. Each state has a different standard. You can't move from one state to another and become a law enforcement officer currently. So if there's about 18,000 agencies, from a public perception, when incidents such as Minneapolis happens, they, it's not viewed as this is a different state, different training standard, different program. It tarnishes the entire law enforcement community across the country. So I guess in addressing that question, I'm gonna add on top of that, does there need to be a national standard that's adhered to in all states? Yeah, I think, um you know, there's something to be said about a national standard. I think, I think right now, in terms of uh, standards, the, the law is the standard. For instance, Miranda rights, that's throughout the entire country. There's no jurisdiction that can escape that. And so the academy, um, to, to tie this into your, your previous question, the academy has to be the hub. The, the academy has to be the brain in receiving information, receiving trends understanding, listening enough to society to understand what they should be training police officers. Um, I think there's five, in the state of Maryland, there's 500, some objectives, maybe more now. Um, those, those standards have to be, uh, de be derived basically from the law itself. Um, and the law is derived from what the people of the country want. And so when you talk about an academy, you have to have people in the leadership in terms of the academy that are listening, that are scanning the environment, that understand the tune of what's going on um, outside of their own police agency. Now, when that recruit comes to academy, they get an initial training. That trainer should be like a coach. Um, and that coach needs to be listening for this person's um, skills, knowledge, and abilities, and building on that. When that person goes to the field, when he actually leaves the academy, graduates, and goes, he goes to a, he's handed off to a supervisor. That supervisor needs to be so in tune with the academy that they're saying the same thing, that he understands what he was trained and how it should be applied. And so that it's a complete system. It's kind of like what Deming said, that uh, every person in the organization need to understand what the goals are of that organization and what their role is, what their part is. And the only way you can do that is have this interconnection between what society's saying, the academy's listening, the academy is putting that information out to the supervisors, the supervisors are putting it up, uh, up through the uh, commanders, managing up. And I think that's the way that we achieve that. So, Mike Brown, I mean, you're, you're traveling across the country, you're looking at agencies um, all across the country. When you're looking at training in all these different departments, what are you seeing? I think Mo uh, touched on it when he used the word leadership. And I remember when I applied and got to the interview stage for the training administrator for the D.C. Department of Corrections, I was asked by the executive director, how long does it take to make a good corrections officer? And my response to him was, it depends on what your vision of a good correctional officer is. So as the leader of this organization, if I know what type of officer that you want representing your agency, I can give you some idea of how long it'll take me to get there. But without knowing what your vision is as a leader, I can't tell you how long it takes to make a good officer because I don't really know what a good officer is. It's a subjective term. 
So we've, we've talked about leadership uh, on a number of occasions uh, since we started. What it is that we should be expecting from at least uh, a management and leadership perspective uh, when it comes to police organizations? I know we touched on, on policy before. Obviously, management has, you know, uh, oversight over that. We determine, you know, how recruiting is done, training. I mean, what are the things are we looking at when we're talking about managing a, a police agency? Can I make a quick comment on that, Reggie? Yeah. I think there's a disconnect having run a training academy. There's a disconnect between a training issue and a behavioral issue. Mm. Oftentimes, you'll have managers send officers back to the training academy. They need to be retrained. And when you look at the, the actual issue, it wasn't that the officer didn't know what to do. The officer used his own judgment and exercised what was bad behavior. So instead of looking to fix bad behavior or correct bad behavior, you immediately label it training and all of a sudden it becomes a training issue. And when it doesn't correct the behavior, then we ask ourselves why. Did you have to, did you have to report back to management on that issue and say, well, you send this individual for retraining, but this isn't a retraining issue and he should be disciplined? Yeah, absolutely. And actually before this uh, podcast, I had a call this morning from um, someone that I kind of look at as somewhat of a mentor. And he said to me, that was definitely a training issue. And I disagree. Well, what was a training issue? That what happened in Minneapolis. Okay, yeah. His first comment was, that's a training issue. And I disagree. Because I don't know if any academy in the nation teaches you to put your knee on a person's neck. That was a behavioral issue. Right. So again, even today, we're confusing the two, training versus behavior. What that officer did was wrong. That's not, when you do something wrong that you know is wrong, that's not a training issue. That's a behavioral issue. And you can't correct the 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 training side of it without correcting the behavior side so you're saying that there needs to be a link between the training academy training uh process and management in terms of the disciplinary structure yes absolutely right Lee? yeah you know your i think your question was to this issue of leadership and police force you know um and i think i alluded to this earlier huge responsibility um my hat's off to uh, Chief Arredondo over there in Minneapolis. Yeah. Being a leader um, of people who are responsible for enforcing the laws of the state, the county, or the city is a huge responsibility that um, takes a lot of balance. You have the different constituencies that you have to sort of um, balance in order to get this job done. Um, and and even when you, you get an officer that gets in trouble, um, it becomes critical that, you know, you're not seen as biased, but that you're seen as fair and that you're seen and, and that, that you act fair and that you, you know, make sure that you understand the parameters of everything that has occurred and make decisions. You know, decisions are not going to be popular all the time. Um, and how do you really balance that? So, it, you know, as a police chief, you really have to pay attention to all the moving parts and, 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 and all the things that can go wrong. Um, and you have to have foresight. You really have to be thinking ahead in order to, you know, lead um, a police department. You know, this is just one of those occupations where you have continually have to learn um, and continue to have to change in order to um, lead an, uh, an organization effectively. Maurice? Yeah, so um, I, when we talk about leadership, it, it's, it's not just linear. You know, linear would be, okay, my organizational goals, my policies, my, the, the, the officers and the, the people whom I serve in my organization. I think part of the bigger problem and the bigger job for chiefs, majors, colonels, lieutenant colonels, is to be out in the community. One of the things that, one of the reasons why sometimes these things happen, when I say these things, I'm talking about bad interactions with police, is because people don't know what to expect when 
a police officer stops them or engages them. Um, I, I, I did a, a, a little class for my family reunion because we have a lot of young black males. And it was interesting because just to hear them talk, because some of them had no idea about, well, why does he stop me? What gives him the authority? And they don't know that because in the schools, we're not teaching civics anymore. We're not teaching um, you know, how government flows and who has the right to do what and who has the authority. So then kids are missing that. And so when they get out and they graduate without those kinds of uh, studies, and the police stop them, well, why is he stopping me? You know, I had one young lady ask the question, says, well, why can't uh, um, uh, President Obama run for another term, you know, or, or, or be a president again, you know? And that's like basic information. And so I think it's the responsibility of police chiefs to not only educate and train their force, but they need to be out um, in the community teaching people what to expect from the police, what's normal, what's not normal, um, why we do things. The reason why we stop you and the reason why we ask you those initial questions because we want to make sure that you're safe and we're safe. Um, the reason why we want to ask you about your driver's license is so that we can identify who we're talking to with, with clarity. Um, and so leadership means, uh, so, somebody just said, Lee, I think it was Lee said that it's an extremely tough job. And it's a tough job because you have to be a 360 degree chief, not only your organization, but the po po politicians, the community leaders, the young people in the school. You have to make sure that you're educating everybody about what you're doing, what direction you're going and what you're trying to do. And without that understanding, it's chaos. Uh, two things I want to cover, and is exactly what one of that you just mentioned here. Obviously, we're talking that is gonna everything has to be based uh, on on the law. That's that's your that's your foundation under which you're operating. And the constitution and then right. law. Yeah. Right. And so both people, the person being stopped and the officer doing the stopping, has to be able to articulate what the law is and under what authority does he have reason to stop you. That would be the sum, yes. <laughs> that would be the correct way, okay? Now, in many instances, um, you see, and you, you can go into YouTube now and see a lot of instances where people are stopped, and the first question from the citizen is, why did you stop me? And the answer is, because I need to identify you. But I think that there has to be something from the officer up front about why he's conducting the stop. Well, um, yes. Uh, well, that, that's arguable because I wanted, if I, if, if the assumption is, is that if a police stops you, he has a legitimate reason to stop you. And the way we traditionally train police officers, we, the police officer asks, can I see a driver's license or registration? To make sure I know who you're talking to, I know who I'm talking to, and that I can pass that information back to, to my communication center to make sure that there's no warrants or what have you. And then once that's clear, I'm safe, you're safe, I know who I'm talking to, sir, ma'am, the reason why I stopped you is da-da-da. Okay, Lee, Lee? Yeah, you know, um, I was reflecting on what Mo was just talking about. Um, I think part of the, you know, and I've seen this, um, and we've all seen this, is where things go awry when police officers approach people, um, you know, in, in that initial approach is critical how you how you come across and, and it varies it, it depends on the situation if you're chasing somebody who who may be a suspect um in in a crime or something um i think you you know based on the information that you have at the time it it, it creates a different um approach as opposed to you know, stopping somebody on traffic or somebody um, just walking down the street. Um, it, it, it's, it's, again, it's a very dynamic situation. And, and what is said, um, those things set people off. Um, and sometimes going back to what Mo said earlier, there's a lack of understanding. That's why it's so important for police agencies to be educating ahead of time before these situations occur. Um, you know, I think we've all seen those um, stop and approach kind of situations that go bad really quickly. And a lot of it, you know, the police officer 
you know, has a lot of control over how, in, in many instances, over how these things can, can, can turn out. Um, and they're all different. They're very different. Um, and, and so you've got to have a mixture of tools in your toolkit to, to, to be able to adapt and to adjust and to make those quick decisions and how that communication um, flows out in order to, to have good outcomes. Well, I want to touch on one uh, last topic, and this is the issue of transparency. Um, in a lot of instances now, obviously, you talked earlier about uh, body camera, um, and you know, there's a lot of body camera footage now. There's footage from uh, cameras mounted in uh, police cruisers. And there's always a lack or a lag in time when these incidents are made public. Mm -hmm. um, it creates a, a, an aura of mistrust and um, a cover-up. How do you balance the need to inform the public about what happened with this need for um, at least you know investigations I mean, how do you sort of bridge that gap to to basically mitigate this this issue surrounding transparency? I, I think I think that um, you know the, the the issue of body cameras, body worn cameras. Um, I think um, is is very, you know, it it's controversial. However, I think it's a good tool. Um, but there's also it becomes a part of an investigation, you know, and I think that's part of why you see a lot what occurred and when the police department is able to release the video and all that sort of thing. Um, I, well, I think it's a good tool. I don't think that we law enforcement and community have really ironed out um, the parameters of body camera use and transparency. Um, I think people said we want bad body cameras and police departments that could afford it and police departments that could, you know, wanted it um, and pushed it um, got body, body cameras. But I, I think the community was left out of the, um, the, the equation that talked about parameters around body camera use. You have some, some police departments that have body cameras um, that, that don't have effective policies to go with them. Um, or policies that really address the transparency issue. So better community, community police um, awareness yeah. surrounding the use of body cameras and how and when they would be released. Yeah. Um, uh, Mo, you? Yeah, so I was going to say, before we start using these things, these new tools, we have to explain to the public why we're using them, number one. And number two, what the process is. What is your process? Okay, so we have something that's controversial. There's some issue with the police that's been captured on body camera. Um, the organization has to investigate first to take a look at what happened because you're going to ask the organization questions. You're going to have some expectations. You're going to ask about policy. You're going to ask about uh, those kind of things. Sometimes we have to sanitize those uh, um, body cams because those, those images because some of them are very violent. There's innocent people involved, especially for me, like in a hospital situation, the police come into the hospital, there's people that are sick and we have a, a, law, a rule called HIPAA, you know, and um, you don't have a right to have um, um, individuals uh, medical information. And if the police officer is wearing his body camera, sometimes that becomes a, a problem. So we have to kind of sanitize what they're seeing to some degree. Now, uh, the public has to trust us that we're going to be transparent in showing everything that's pertinent to that event without causing innocent people problems or without showing something that would shock the public conscience. Um, the death of uh, Mr. Floyd, while, while very tragic, I mean, when you look at those images, it's extreme um, to watch a man literally die right in front of your face, you know. Uh, it's necessary in this case, but sometimes we have to protect children and other other people from seeing those kind of images. Mike? Yeah, I think even if a police officer commits what's perceived to be a crime and is captured on video, that officer as a U.S. citizen still has the presumption of innocence until proven guilty in a court of law. So, if the public would understand that, 
it's in everyone's best interest to not taint the potential jury pool and to give the agency time to vet this information. I think that they understood that, that this would help us because five people can watch the same video and see five different things. Right. But that, but that would, that would be, that would be in the instance where um, the incident um, would more likely include criminal charges. But let's say it's an incident that doesn't um, or may not rise to that level. It's just, or if it's a use of force or something that um, may not go to court, I don't know if there's, there would be such an instance. I mean, but there's, there's, there's never any information well, on the disciplinary process as well, correct? Well, there's a potential, there's a potential right now in the Floyd case where, you know, the, the officers that are standing by, it's a possibility that uh, they could um, be, it may not be criminal. For the one officer, absolutely, it's clear cut. But for the other three, it may be dereliction of duty, which is not a criminal offense. But then, and then how is the public notified about what disciplinary actions were taken? So at least from a public perspective, we see that at least the department had taken steps to, to discipline the officers. And that's very, that's, that's a very interesting question because when it comes to most police agencies and um, officer behavior that's not criminal, they'll say to you, you basically have to trust us that this has been taken care of because that officer still has a career. Can I make one more comment for your listeners? Sure, go ahead. So if you look at a lot of these incidents and you connect it to training, I can't train you how not to be racist. I can train you to know what discrimination is. So when you do something like a knee in the back and a chokehold, that you know that what you've done is wrong. I think uh, before we leave, I just think with knowledge that um, our sympathy goes out to all the families because um, this is certainly a tragic incident. The families on both sides um, because they're going to suffer um, for this incident. So. We engage in a broad discussion on what's wrong in policing. We may not have been able to capture the gravity of the circumstances. Nothing said today can change what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota six days ago. Many people are rightfully angered by what was seen on that video. There's nothing can be said at this time to ease the pain of this gaping wound. We can only try to find constructive ways to express our anger, pray for healing, and resolve to do better and be better. We have to respect the rights and dignity of each other. It is only when we see each other as equal will we move past these dark times. I want to thank Maurice Davis, Mike Brown, and Lee James for participating today and sharing their experiences and insight. And again, thank you for joining us at Human Rights Matters, where we discuss matters of human rights because your rights matter.